When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today I'll be talking with Megan Tantillo. Megan is a nurse health coach and founder of Holistic Health Code, an online health coaching practice for women and families. Megan helps women set and achieve health goals, navigate the health system, and get the most out of their health care. She's also finishing up her final semester for her Doctor of Nursing Practice degree, which she is very excited about. In today's episode, we talk about preconception planning and things to think about when you decide you want to have a baby, or even your second, third, or fourth baby. Megan is someone that helped and coached me during a time in my life where I was having multiple miscarriages and issues with my cycles. Let's dive in. Hi, Megan. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. We're so excited to have you. Hi, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So you are coming up on finishing your doctorate. Is that right? Yeah, last semester. Can't wait. I am so excited for you because obviously I've been a fan of yours for a while now. And I don't even know how many years it's been. But before Maggie was conceived, we chatted a lot because I was having a lot of issues with my luteal phase. And it was really short and we'll kind of dive, I'll have you kind of explain a little bit about that, but it was about eight days long. And I, and I was having a couple of miscarriages prior to her being conceived. And I was getting nervous that the short luteal phase was part of that, part of the reason why it wasn't, you know, sticking essentially. And so we had chatted and you came up with this plan for me and, you know, long story short of it, obviously conceived Maggie on, you know, like month six or seven, um, of that journey. And I'm still just so thankful of, you know, what I learned during that time, especially working with you, because there's so much that goes into preconception planning that people may not even know exists. And I think it's really important to know before you decide to try to have children. So that is what we're talking about today. And I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about preconception planning and, you know, what a care plan looks like. Yeah, sure. I am so happy to talk about this because like you said, I feel like it's not something that a lot of people understand or have access to, but preconception care is so important for not only your first pregnancy, but your second or third to really be sure that your health outcomes are as positive as they can be. So preconception care really refers to the health care that you receive before you start trying, again, whether that's the first or the second. Um, And then more specifically, the process speaks to identifying your personal risk factors to your fertility and pregnancy outcome. 
So that can look like social, behavioral, environmental, or medical risk factors. And that's really what we do as nurse health, nurse health coaches at Holistic Health Code is try to meet you where you are and to identify your personal risk factors and do what we can to modify them because many are modifiable, specifically nutrition and lifestyle. So really speaking like high level, what preconception is, is recognizing that there are modifiable risk factors to your fertility and fertility outcome, empowering you with education that we can make a change. And then together we work to optimize your health and do what we can through education, counseling, and appropriate intervention to optimize your health and your fertility. That is great. And I just wish that I knew about this even sooner than I did because you know, it's, it's helpful to have that support, you know, while you're going through all of this. And if you do have issues or you do have a miscarriage, you know, sometimes that's something that you can't control. And sometimes it is, you know, if you, if you know enough about your cycle and I actually wish I could just put in like a diagram right now so that people could have a vision of, you know, day one when your menstruation starts and, you know, then your ovulatory phase and then your, when you go into your luteal phase and then eventually you go back into menstruation. I I think it's important for people to understand exactly what happens during that time period because it's not one size fits all. Not everybody has this 28 day cycle. And I think importantly, and what we talked about a lot is that, after your first baby, you may have these beautiful 28-day cycles, which is what I had before uh, my first was born. And then with each pregnancy, my cycles were totally different. And so in between babies, you know, one and two, two and three, and especially between three and four, they really, really started to change and it wasn't for the better. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, and my cycles were, you know, like, I think when we chatted, they were like 21 to 22 days long. And, yeah. you know, some women, they're 40, 45 days long, you know, and so understanding exactly, you know, how your body is functioning and how many days your cycle is and trying to figure out where you're ovulating in between that cycle. And some, some women don't ovulate, um, you know, one month to the next month, but if you can try to nail down when, when you're actually ovulating, obviously your chances of conceiving are going to be higher. And so maybe you could even walk us through maybe even like from day one to day 28, kind of just talking about how women could figure out when they're ovulating. Sure. Yeah, I can do that. That's definitely like step one. If you're trying to plan a pregnancy, even if you're trying to prevent a pregnancy, it's important that you know when you're most fertile, especially, I mean, obviously, if you're not on birth control, you need to know when you're ovulating to, again, have a pregnancy or avoid one. But in order to track your ovulations, I typically will recommend clients just starting to track their periods. So day one of your period. So when you start to bleed is day one of your cycle. And then from there, I try to have clients start to monitor their cervical mucus. So they'll start to recognize changes to their cervical mucus. And typically, like mid-cycle, 
or a few days before you're suspected to ovulate, you'll notice that your cervical mucus will change in quality. So it will look more egg white, slippery. That's a pretty good indicator that you're about to ovulate or when you're going to be most fertile. Usually clients can get the information that they need from those two steps. So tracking their period and then monitoring cervical mucus with the understanding that most clients will, or most women will ovulate mid-cycle around day 14, 13, sometimes 12 or a few days later. If they don't have success with those two steps, I would recommend taking it a step further and using one or both of an ovulation predictor kit. So testing for luteinizing hormone, that's the hormone that will surge right before your ovulation. And then the other thing that you can do is track basal body temperature. So that's more of like a retrospective look back at um, your ovulation. So if you're tracking temperatures throughout your cycle, you'll notice that after ovulation, your temperature increases for a sustained period of time, usually a couple days. Um, that's because once you ovulate, you release the egg and the corpus luteum, the structure that's left behind, starts to produce progesterone. And then progesterone is actually the hormone that warms the body. So we can say, okay, I likely ovulated around you know, day 14. I noticed egg white mucus around day 12, 13. And then looking back at my cycle data that I've been tracking, I can confirm ovulation based on these few days of a temp increase, which is rather small. But I think that those are the steps that clients usually find success with to find out what their fertile window is. Yes. And a couple of things, I'm actually just jotting some things down as you're talking, because I wanted to touch on a few of these. So progesterone. So when I was tracking, I had never tracked temperatures or my ovulation really before my three babies. And then with baby number four, you know, I had experienced quite a few issues and I was tracking my temperature and, you know, your temperature when it peaks for those few days after ovulation, if you do conceive your temperature, which when I conceived those three times, two were miscarriages, and then one the third time was Maggie, you know, your temperature stays up. And this is why a lot of women take that extra progesterone is to kind of support that pregnancy during that time. And I was using the progesterone, was it uh, drops? What was it that you had prescribed me? Now I was it was drops. I, I like I like the drops from Designs for Health, I believe, just because they're like super clean. Like there's nothing else really in the cream, but there's a few professional brands that I like if you wanted to try a different product. But I, I did like the the serum. I called it yeah. a cream, but it was a and it's serum. Been so long now. I'm almost like forgetting mm-hmm. what I had I know. done. But, but that was one of think. the things I did to support the pregnancy the third time around. And yeah, I mean, it's just all so interesting to me. And cervical mucus is so underused is the I other know. thing I wanted to mention. And women, I don't know if they're like, oh, that's so weird, or I'm grossed out by it, or you know, what have you. But it is a very like once you look into it and actually learn about it and just concentrate on it. It's, it's a very, very, very 
good and easy predictor of when you're ovulating. It's a helpful tool. I mean, mm-hmm. it really, really is. Like, I, I recommend it way more than even the, you know, those kits that you can get. And yeah, same. Yeah. And so I think, and women are like, well, I can't really tell the difference. But if you, every single month, check around, you know, days, like I would say like even early, like days eight to like 20, you know, cause you don't know exactly when you're going to ovulate, but if you're checking your cervical mucus all the way throughout, you're going to definitely notice a significant difference right around that time. And I just feel like it's so, so helpful. I agree, especially because the luteinizing hormone kits, like if you use those exclusively, you're missing you know, two to three days potentially of your most fertile time. So it's really an experiment. You have to use all of these, you know, data points. It's, it's kind of challenging to be honest, you know, like it's not easy to get pregnant. I know, I I know right before we started to record, we were talking about the stat of like 25%. If everything's lined up, you could potentially get pregnant. So it's like using the information that you have and, Yeah. And trying to understand your unique cycle. That's why, you know, I do what I do because it's, it's challenging to figure out on your own, especially if you're not familiar with some of these changes with your body. Right. And yeah, so you had just touched on this where if you use the ovulation kits, it'll tell you when you have your LH surge, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And people will be like, oh, oh, now's the time. But you actually don't know exactly when the time is, right? Because your LH surges, but then your egg is released after that, you know, somewhere in like a 24, 48 hour type window. But you don't know exactly when that's going to be. So with the tracking of the cervical mucus as well, you can just use all of those different factors to really try to nail it down. Mm-hmm. Now, now this just made me think of this question because I feel like this is just always asked, is there any rhyme or reason to having intercourse every single day or every other day once you start to think that you're going to ovulate? What is your suggestion with that? I know everybody has a different recommendation. Yeah, I get this question all the time. And I believe that there's no hard data that we could use in terms of like making a recommendation. So I typically will say, do what feels comfortable. Like Mm -hmm. if you want to have sex every day in your fertile window, go for it. It's not going to affect your chances one way or the other. But if you have sex every other day in your fertile window, that's okay too. Yep. I agree. I think it's whatever, you know, you don't, you also don't want this to be a chore, right? Yeah. And it, it can be, get like that when you're right. like checking basal body temperature oh and my gosh. intercourse. Yes. It's like, wait, let me check my chart. <laughs> you know, it just becomes like this whole to do. And it's, oh yeah. And I think stress and anxiety play a huge, huge role into this, especially if you're, you know, someone, I mean, I know it did for me when I was having miscarriages and I'm like, you know, when you're stressed out, your body doesn't know how to relax. And it's, it's subconsciously, it's not going to want to sustain a pregnancy or, you know, create a pregnancy because they're like, we're in a high stress situation and I don't want to, bring a baby into this until, you know, you're more relaxed and more calm and more able to just be ready for this. 
I mean, biologically, that's true too. Yeah, Sorry, exactly. Sorry to interrupt no, exactly. you because you said like subconsciously, but truly your body biologically won't want to have a pregnancy because of that. And, you know, physical or emotional stress, it can be one or the other physical or emotional stress. I think it's easy to, well, easier often to identify when you're emotionally stressed for most people, but there are physical stressors involved too, you know, like chronic, like insulin resistance or inflammation, all of these things kind of play a role. And kind of looping back to your story, I know that I know that that was a really stressful time for you. And that could have been one of the compounding factors that were contributing to your short luteal phase, which was problematic because you weren't mounting a good enough response for progesterone production, which was one of the variables that we knew that was contributing to your miscarriage. Yes, yes, exactly. So let's chat. If a woman wants to get pregnant, okay, now you had said the best thing to do first is to start tracking your cycle and figure out a, how many days exactly on average is your cycle? Because because one you know one month it might be thirty days, the next day it might be the next month it might be twenty eight days, and tracking that and figuring all of that out. And then what are the next steps if somebody you know wants to get pregnant? What what else should they be thinking about or preparing for? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that you know tracking your period and tracking ovulation is the first obvious two steps because you can't get pregnant if you don't know when you're ovulating. And I think that that's something that is is overlooked often. But in terms of like a preconception plan, so earlier in our talk, we talked about identifying those unique risk factors to each woman's fertility and pregnancy outcome. So that's really what a preconception plan is. So kind of going through those steps of know, what's your past medical history? Are you dealing with anything currently in your in your medical world or life? What's your reproductive history? Is there anything family history involved that we need to talk about? And then, you know, there's some other things too, like, are you on medications that we need to talk about? Or what's your nutrition like, lifestyle, your work environment, all of these things play a role. So it's just starting the process of identifying what those personal risks are, and then making actual steps towards your plan to hopefully improve your fertility and your outcome. Yes. I mean, this is one of the reasons why I love your account is you can eat certain foods throughout different phases that Mm -hmm. helps support each phase, right? Can you just give us a couple of examples of that? Because I think just that's really cool and people don't realize that. I love that you want to talk about this because when I was thinking about our talk yesterday or the day before, I was like, oh, this is, it's both of these things are, I wanted to talk about cycle syncing, but it's so important in the context of preconception care too, because when you start to think about, you know, I want to get pregnant, you start to take a closer look at your cycle. And then for a lot of women, they start to realize that there's some irregularities with their cycle, or maybe it's longer or shorter some months or cycles, and then maybe they have anovulatory cycles or, or missed ovulation. So really tuning into your cycle and making changes in terms of diet and lifestyle, how you're moving, how you're sleeping and living can really make a difference with your hormone health. 
So to kind of take you through each of the phases, that you are correct in saying that there's things that you can do to support your natural hormone production, which in turn supports your fertility. So uh, during menstruation, I typically, do you want to talk about foods first or kind of go through like food energy and how you're moving? I think it would be cool to, to, to talk about each phase independently maybe and say, okay, like these are a couple of foods that could help support this phase. And this is a type of exercise that could support this phase. Because you know what too, is when I was getting, so I was doing orange theory, which for those of you that are listening that are not familiar, it's a pretty intense workout and I was doing it four to five days a week. Okay. So I was doing this really intense workout four to five days a week and, you know, subsequently was experiencing several losses within my family um, during that time. And although my miscarriage is, well, one of them was outside of that, but then the next one actually was right when my grandmother had died. And there was just a lot of stress going on and I felt like I needed to work out because of that stress, but here I am trying to conceive during all that stress. So I remember you mentioning, well, maybe, you know, um, think about maybe doing something like yoga. And I was like, oh gosh, yoga. Like, yeah. That's like the opposite of like what <laughs> I, I would want to do. With- <laughs> I'm like, no, thanks. I'll do without. So I'm, I'm not somebody that I just, I'm not good at it. And I wish I, I wish I was and something maybe eventually that I'll, I'll try to do, but I mean, it makes a lot of sense that that would have helped me during that time, you know, and instead, because I was so stressed out, I did choose to just keep doing orange theory, but I would love to touch on that a little bit. And maybe we could just go through the phases and chat about that. That's really interesting. Yeah, sure. So I am always like, <laughs> whenever clients are struggling to to get pregnant or maintain a pregnancy and we talk about exercise, I mean, the recommendation is to do what you've always done. And if Orange Theory is what you've been doing and you've been benefiting, then certainly move forward with it. But I feel like I'm always the bad guy to say like, well, maybe we should try some lower intensity exercise that's more restorative. Because remember, exercise is a physical stress on the body, like whether it feels great or not, it certainly can play a role or does play a role rather in our hormone production. To kind of go through the the cycle phases, we'll start with Well, let's start from the beginning. We'll keep it simple. Menstruation is typically when you are at your lowest energy level. For obvious reasons, your hormones are at their lowest. So this is really a good time to lean into restorative exercise or simply rest. I usually take a few days off myself from exercise during menstruation, especially the first couple days for that reason you are actively bleeding. So it would be a good time to include iron rich foods like lentils or green leafy vegetables, uh, beef if you're a meat eater. I like omega threes during this time too. So fatty fish can be really helpful to turn down inflammation. And then as you move towards the follicular phase, your hormones will start to rise again. So more energy, more focus, you're open to new plans or projects. So maybe you start a new something in your work or jump on a podcast. Um, You can do something new in the gym, maybe take a new class. Since estrogen is on the rise at this time, I like to focus on 
supporting normal estrogen metabolism. So including broccoli sprouts in your diet can be really helpful and probiotics to make sure that you remain regular. So your bowels are moving regularly. And then mid-cycle ovulation is when you would benefit most from a class like Orange Theory. So you're energy is peaked, your mental clarity is peaked, you're confident, you want to communicate and socialize with people. So another class would be great at this time or something high intensity would be great. For food wise, I usually will recommend foods or supplements that can support a strong ovulation. So this is kind of tying back to your care plan. That's really what we did in terms of like, your dietary recommendations and your your supplement recommendations. We started you on vitamin C because we knew we know that that can support progesterone production. We did start the topical progesterone at that time, but I think I think did we start Vitex with you? I think we, we might have. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Vitex can be great, and then luteal phase is when well, it's the phase that we all <laughs> know and love when PMS when you're prone to PMS and stress. So. I like to recommend more lower intensity exercise during the teal phase. So something like walking or Pilates or yoga in terms of nutritional needs, uh, same supplements or foods to support progesterone production can be beneficial. And then magnesium. I, I really like magnesium during luteal phase, especially I know magnesium has been really helpful for you, but since you're, prone to anxiety and stress during this time, mag is a great underutilized mineral that can be very relaxing and grounding. Yes. can also help with cramping too if you have menstrual cramps during your period. And then we're kind of back in the beginning. But people or women that menstruate or people that menstruate, I should say, that really lean into these practices of cycle syncing, I find they have much more success in their goals. They feel more in control of their body. They're able to lean into their like genius periods, if you know what I mean. Like, yeah. it's almost like working with your body versus against it. I totally agree with you. You're like, yes, yes, yes. Because, <laughs> well, because I, I'm the opposite of what you're trying to tell people to do. And so mm-hmm. <laughs> when I hear you, I'm like, yes, because. I feel like the same thing happens during the birth of your child where your body knows exactly what it needs to do and it's it wants you to just lean into it and relax into it which is obviously very difficult right but when you do it's so much more successful and you feel so much more successful rather than fighting your body the way that it's you know it's trying to to do something and it's trying to do what it was made to do, but you're, you're fighting against it. And so it reminds me very much of just labor in general and, mm-hmm. you know, how I think many of us women, especially type A's who are like, go, go, go. And, you know, we have all these things that we want to do and we're just constantly fighting against that. And, you know, I'm in my menstrual cycle right now. And I'm, I told you this morning before we get on this, I was like, I am just in a brain fog. Like, yeah, uh, and I'm I'm trying to fight it. I'm like, oh, I have all these things. I was just telling my husband, I was like, I have so much to do today. It's a Friday. I have to get it all done before the weekend, and I have to work this weekend at the hospital. And and you know, I'm like going, going, yeah. going. And it's like maybe Lindsay, maybe you should you need just to rest, sit on the couch this afternoon. Maybe that's what you need to do. <laughs> so yeah, so sorry to interrupt you, but I just yeah, I totally, totally agree with you. 
No, sometimes I like don't know how to wrap it up and I'll worry at all. But I I think that it's like very much like labor though. I like how you how you compared the two. It's basically I'm just trying to explain that your your body knows what to do and if you can really lean in and follow these changes, you can feel much more accomplished and you're able to really meet your goals in that sense because you're able to be or give your body what it needs at that time. Yeah. And just connecting with it and saying, okay, listen, like I, I'm entering my menstrual cycle and you know, my menstrual phase. And you're telling me that, um, you're, you're giving me low energy because you want me to rest. Okay. I'm going to lean into that and I'm going to take your advice and that just better suits you going forward into that follicular phase and eventually ovulation and your body's just getting what it needs. And so, I mean, it's, it doesn't mean that if you don't follow it, you're not going to get pregnant because Lord knows, I mean, I, that's all I did was just, you know, just balls to the wall all the time. <laughs> right. But you know, it's, if you really want to truly learn more about your body and, you know, protecting this pregnancy and creating this pregnancy, I think it's really important to know all of these things. And if you're certainly having trouble getting pregnant, thinking, okay, maybe I should really try to figure this out. And I, I really did when I conceived Maggie, I mean, I was spending a lot of time more in rest mode because of mourning the people that we were losing in my family and just kind of like being in tune with that. And it was probably the most at rest I'd been in a while. And I do think all of that really contributed to conceiving her. So yeah, it's just also interesting and something that I never thought about with my first and second babies. You know, I just didn't even, I was just like, oh, you know, I'm just going to mid cycle, create a baby and go from there, <laughs> you know, and it's, there's, it's a very complicated process. It is so complicated. And I think, I think part of that process is like having like radical self acceptance and honesty. Like, am I really doing what I can to support my body at this time. And I think that if you truly asked yourself that a lot of the times, potentially you could do more or in your case, Lindsay, less. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. So I have a lot of questions from my community for you. So let me pull those up and we can dive into those because these are really interesting and I mean, we could uh, talk forever. I know. I feel like we different... didn't really get in. <laughs> I, know. I know. Is there anything else before we dive into the questions that you wanted to touch on as far as preconception planning and what a care plan might look like and things like that? I think we can just briefly touch on the care plans, if that would be okay. Yeah, absolutely. I think that can be helpful for your listeners because we talked earlier, like, what exactly is preconception care? Like, what are the things that I can make a change? And for my practice, what we focus on are the modifiable risk factors we talked about a few times. So diet, lifestyle, the obvious ones like drinking, smoking. So those are kind of the things that we talk about. But in terms of our care plans, they come with diet, lifestyle, labs, and supplement recommendations. So diet, just to give you like high level for your listeners uh, for preconception care, there's obviously like limited data on what food or diet is the most beneficial. But what we do know is that 
plant-based diets. There's one study, it's called the nurses health health study, nurses health study, I believe, if you wanted to look into it. But what the researchers looked at was a group of nurses and they reported what they ate. And in the end, the researchers concluded that the nurses that ate a more plant-focused diet had less issues with ovulations. Interesting. Yeah. So they had more um, stable, like ovulation or like what? Yeah, like less issues with ovulation. So it means in like the context of like not having uh, like anovulatory cycles mm-hmm. or late anovul- or late ovulations. Um, so I really try to advocate for a plant-based diet. I personally eat and enjoy meat, but really try to have a, a plant-based focus moving forward, like whole foods, plants first. And then for lifestyle, we kind of talked about a few things. Stress is probably the most important thing, physical and emotional stress to look at. Prenatal yoga is really great or coming up with some type of mindfulness practice that feels good for you. I typically will say something like stress management looks different for everybody. Uh, You just need to kind of try on a few things and see what sticks. Um, A health coach can be really helpful in that sense because we can help you understand what works for you. And then labs we can talk about if you're feeling like your community would benefit from. But I think that labs are are generally taken care of with your OB or your midwife. But it's always great to like go to those appointments with an understanding of what is coming down the pike and then what to ask for if you're feeling like your workup is limited. And then again, depending on your risk factors, we might want to look at your metabolic panel if you're feeling like there's a degree of insulin resistance or maybe we do look at insulin and glucose. Um, I have clients look at progesterone in in the second half of their cycle if they're feeling like they have um, issues with their luteal phase. And then supplements are really specific too, depending on what you need. But we talked about with you, we started supplements that really supported ovulation, vitamin C, zinc, Vitex, and then the obvious prenatal with DHA. Yes, that's awesome. And with these care plans, do you typically, like how how much support is there? That's a great question. I usually say we will probably have a much more intimate relationship than you've had with any other healthcare provider. (laughs) And clients are like, what do you mean? <laughs> like, I'm going to be messaging you. I'm going to be yeah. checking up on you. Because yeah. all of this stuff is, is, I mean, it's not easy, you know, implementing right. new dietary changes or starting these new supplements or changing your lifestyle for whatever goals that we're reaching towards. All of this takes time. And it's, yeah. it's hard, you know, if, if it was easy, then I wouldn't be, <laughs> I wouldn't be a health coach. I wouldn't have a job. So right. I usually, I usually stay in touch, especially in the beginning. I find that that's when clients need us most, um, you know, during appointments, we cover a lot, but then when you're left alone with your care plan, you're like, okay, I'm supposed to be doing like X, Y, and Z. How do I put one foot in front of the other? That's when yeah. you need me. So that's when I'm going to be showing up for you. So yeah, you can message us at any time. And I think that's really like the beautiful part of our relationship is that we're here when you need us, not just in your appointments. Yeah, I love that. 
All right. First question is, and we, we touched base on this a little bit, but I'm going to still ask you this. What's the best ovulation kit and do they work? They do work. I am not like married to any brand. I really do like modern fertility. I like what they're doing in this space. They provide a lot of support for for women that are trying to understand their fertile window. I like that they are inclusive and they provide a lot of free education online. So I'd like to advocate for modern fertility. They also have a hormone test that's direct to consumer, which can be really empowering, especially if you're feeling like you're not getting the workup that you deserve from your provider. So modern fertility has a good one, but there's several good ones. There's kits at CVS or Walgreens, Target, wherever. Um, really, all of them theoretically do the same thing. What we're doing is testing for, we mentioned luteinizing hormone, and that's the hormone that surges usually 24 to 36 hours right prior to ovulation. So it can give you like a heads up, like, hey, you're going to be most fertile within the next two days. But we mentioned that that's really one piece of the puzzle. So I wouldn't, you know, put all your eggs in one basket with the ovulation predictor kits. I would check your cervical mucus and make sure you're tracking your period. And maybe you do basal body temperature tracking. I've started to look into, I don't know much about it, but I've been looking into the AVA bracelet and they track a few other biomarkers that can be helpful. So using all of these tools together, I think are, is the best way to go. But yes, to answer your question, they do work. Yeah. So I'm going to, I, yes, I'm going to touch on two things. I'm, I always try to write these things as you're chatting because I wanted to mention two of these. So just from experience, when we were chatting, this was after my second miscarriage. Yeah. Second miscarriage. Well, I had three total, but this was two in a row. And then we were chatting and I was trying to figure out how to support my ovulation. And I went into my OB and this was a new OB for me. I switched practices between my third and fourth. And I was like, well, you know, I'm I'm getting older. And, you know, do you think maybe looking at my hormones and seeing where the levels are at would be helpful at all. And she's like, no, you know, not at all. Definitely not, you know, worth doing that. We don't even know if your insurance will cover it, you know, et cetera, et cetera, which, you know, I do, I, I understand from their perspective because I do know, you know, insurance companies, I think, I think it's probably after the third miscarriage or it might even be more where they will support, you know, more of a workup for infertility and issues that arise with it. So I do understand it from their perspective, but from a patient perspective, some of us really want to have control over what's going on with our bodies. And if we think deep down that something might be wrong with say our progesterone levels, and we don't think that it's high enough to support the pregnancy, once you, you know, once that egg meets the sperm and it starts to you make a baby, you need that progesterone to be able to support that. And if you don't, if you think that might be part of the issue and you really want those levels checked, I really love how you mentioned that. Was it modern, modern fertility? Yeah. Modern fertility. I mean, yeah. I, I like Dutch tests too, but that one you need a provider for. Right. And so with modern fertility, you don't, you said, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That one you can just go online and buy. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's just a great option that, you know, people can have on the back burner if they 
really want, you know, oh, I've had two miscarriages. I really want to know what's going on with my body. I think this might be part of the issue. Well, at least you have the ability to check that, you know, and go to somebody like you, Megan, and say, hey, listen, this was my number. You know, is this normal? How can I support this? What can we do? And OBGYNs and all midwives are all going to practice differently, you know, and some will say, okay, you know what, let's go and do that workup. And some won't. And you know, your insurance obviously plays a big role in this. And if you don't know that they're definitely going to cover it, it can be very expensive to look into all your hormone levels, you know? So a lot to think about and a lot to look into, especially checking with your insurance company first and things like that. But if you wanted to pay out of pocket and just check your progesterone level, that's an option too, which is really cool. So that I wanted to mention. And then you mentioned the Ava bracelet. And so that is actually something I had, I had worked with that company. They had reached out right. It's interesting, right around that time where I was having trouble. And I was like, send the bracelet to me, you know, (laughs) because I wanted to try it out and they might've, I mean, it's been a while now, obviously, since I used it. But when I had used it, I did find that it was a little bit off in my ovulation. So I oh, had, interesting. yeah, I was using, so I'll tell you, I was using the FF app, the fertility friend app. And then I was using the Ava bracelet with the app and I was checking my own temperature. So the Ava bracelet, for those of you that don't know that are listening is a bracelet that you wear and at night it can tell what the average temperature of your body is like throughout the the night and it'll it'll track that and it'll automatically put it into this graph and it tracks a lot of other things like your respiratory rate and your pulse and all of these vital signs essentially lead to them saying, okay, you're entering into the ovulatory phase and this is when we think your ovulation will happen. And so I was using the bracelet let's see, it was May and June, July. And I had miscarried in June when I was using the bracelet. And I was like, you know, I mean, obviously I had conceived, but I was like, I don't know if my ovulation is quite on target. And then in July, we didn't conceive August, we didn't conceive or something like that. I don't really remember the exact logistics, but I was like, "Mm, you know what, let me introduce a couple other things. So I started using the FF app, which is the fertility friend app. And I would take my temperature in the morning and I would put it into the FF app. And that's strictly just temperature that I was using as a tool. And, you know, the Ava bracelet obviously uses more. And the FF app, the ovulation was two or three days off compared to the Ava bracelet app. Oh, interesting. Which is huge when you're trying to Mm -hmm. conceive. And so I started going by that and as you know, we talked about checking cervical mucus and all of that. And the FF app was way more on target than the Ava bracelet. And I truly think, so I don't know if they changed anything with the Ava bracelet since then, but it just wasn't as accurate as the fertility friend app. And then just checking my own temperature with a thermometer at home. I just found that personally, that might not be the case for everybody. That's just my personal experience. So, um, Whenever people ask me, I'm always like, well, just, just try out this fertility friend app, get, you know, you can use a thermometer at home. Some people will get like the basal thermometer. I mean, I don't think it really matters. Just any thermometer and check your temperature, you know, first thing in the morning before you get out of bed and put it into your little app. And between that and your cervical mucus, I think you're really, really good to go. I agree. I think the cervical mucus is great. Like start there. 
all the other things can get really complicated. Even basal body temperature can feel like a well, lot. And it's stressful because you're like, yeah. oh, wait, my temperature, and you're marking it down. It's just like this daily reminder that, A, you might not be getting pregnant, and you're just like tracking these temperatures, and it just becomes like this stressful thing, you know? And so I feel like with the cervical mucus, it's just like this thing that will happen, and you'll know because it's your body and you'll know when your, you know, cervical mucus, mucus starts to thin out and it starts to get slippery and, and you'll, you'll just know right. those things and you won't be stressed out about waking up every morning and writing down your temperature and checking the app and checking, you know, Oh, oh today's the day. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's so many things that can interrupt that too, like stress or shift work. If you don't sleep well or have a drink the night before basal body temperature is, is touchy. So having other, other tools is is definitely recommended but in terms of the the temperature i think you i think you would want one that has at least 2 degrees or 2 decimal points rather right i'm trying to say because yes. it can be you know it can be oh yes small and it, you might yeah. miss it yeah you're right you're right that's a really good thing to note because you know some days it would be 98.16 and then the next day is mm-hmm. 98.34 but when you're graphing this it can be drastic right so when you have those decimal points that 98.16 is down here but then your 0.36 is way up here like it just totally depends and everybody's body is different so that's yeah definitely right. important to note and if you're not used to looking at that data like having somebody to help you make sense of that might be worth your time. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. How to start trying when you're still breastfeeding and your period hasn't returned? Ooh, good question. So challenging. A lot of women aren't as successful, I think, as they want to be. I think it's important to acknowledge how much energy it requires to conceive a child, carry a child, and then feed a child. So my first recommendation would be to make sure that you're eating enough, you're staying hydrated, and you're getting enough quality fats in your diet. Um, So DHA can be helpful. But I think that it's important to note that many women don't start to ovulate again, especially during breastfeeding until they start to wean or introduce some foods. So later in their kind of fertility journey, whether it's, you know, one year out or even, I don't know how long it took you to start ovulating. And I think if my memory serves me, it it was only a few months, but everybody's different. Um, So just supporting doing what you can to support ovulation, but having the understanding that if you're breastfeeding, you are essentially suppressing ovulation. Right. Yeah. And a little, a personal experience here is that with my first few pregnancies, you know, postpartum, I got my cycles back each time around the eighth month postpartum. And that was always when I tried to cut out a couple of feeds at night. So that makes sense. You know, you're, you're, you're not breastfeeding as much overnight. And so your body's like, oh, okay, we're going to return back to normal. I'll try to return back to normal. So that was the case with my first three children. And I had tried with the first two to get pregnant after that year mark. So I had had my period back for four months or four cycles, you know, uh, about four cycles. And I would try, I was trying to get pregnant and I couldn't do it while breastfeeding. I've never been able to get pregnant while breastfeeding, even though my cycle was back. And so I think 
it's important for people to understand that just because your cycle's back doesn't necessarily mean that you'll be able to conceive. You might not be ovulating. Your cycle might be back. You might not be ovulating. Or your body simply is like, you know what? We're sustaining one life right now with breastfeeding and I can't do both. And so it's just kind of respecting your body and saying, okay, I get that. And so I had to wean my first and second off in order to get pregnant, which is what I had done. I think I weaned them both around like 14 or 15 months. And then with the fourth pregnancy, I started bleeding six weeks. So I had bled for a couple weeks, obviously after she was born. And then I, we had chatted because I was freaking out, Megan. <laughs> I was freaking out. I remember. Had, yeah, remember. I was I because I was so devastated. I was like, this is my last baby. I want to nurse her for as long as I want to nurse her. And I was so scared that if my period came back, my supply was going to suffer because that's essentially what happened with my other my other babies. I just felt like the second they started to wean at eight months from overnight, my supply just kind of diminished month to month after that. And so at six weeks, I started bleeding and I just didn't even know what to do myself. And of course, with all the hormones postpartum, it just wasn't a good combination, but it actually held off for a couple months after that. But I have had my cycle back now for, I would say two months or so. So since she was about five and a half months, it came back and I can definitely say that it hasn't affected my supply much at all. And if it does, it's so minimal that I, I don't even see it. And she seems completely satisfied. So that should be reassuring to some of those mamas out there that are nervous that it might affect their milk supply. It doesn't have to, and you can definitely eat certain foods that will help support that. And, you know, hydration is obviously huge and things like that. So huge. Yeah. So I think that's, that's um, all that I have to say about that question. Did you have anything else to add about that? No, I think that was good. I think just like having the understanding that, it might not be possible and that's okay. Uh, But just doing what you can to support your body and accepting either way. Yeah, exactly. Okay. How common is infertility or fertility issues in women? Now she gives an age 25 to 35, but I think that might be tough to kind of like narrow it down into a certain age group, but we can just even just address, you know, how common I know that women are, you know, having babies later and later because, you know, they're going and they're, they're maintaining these careers and they want to receive their degrees. And then they're talking about entering into parenthood. And sometimes they're in their thirties when they're doing this. And so I think a lot of women's concerns are, am I going to have fertility issues if I wait until I'm, you know, mid thirties to start trying to conceive. So do you have anything to offer on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's important to acknowledge that age is the number one risk factor for fertility. So we know that we're born with our eggs and our eggs age with us. So to say Mm -hmm. that, you know, age doesn't matter would be a miss. But we know that women are having children later in life now because of the reasons that you mentioned, at least in part, having to do with careers and professional lives. And women that have children later in life actually do better with the physical and emotional things that come up with motherhood. They're able to cope better and 
more or less respond to the demands of pregnancy and, and parenting better than someone earlier in life would. But I, I don't know off the top of my head a specific stat for that age group, but it is certainly important to consider age. I'm 31 this year and I am in that age group of, you know, am I getting older? But I chose, you know, I chose my my education and that's not the choice that everybody makes, but there's there's still time. I think that that's a big part of what I do too is is trying to educate that just because you're in your 30s or even 35, 36, 37, women are having children in their 40s, you know? So just trying to educate that, you know, your risk certainly does increase as you age, but that doesn't mean that it's impossible or dangerous to have a child after 35. Yes, exactly. All right, next question here. Can birth control distort hormones long-term? I know this is a really big question because, I mean, myself, I was on birth control, you know, in my younger years until I decided to come off of them and have my first baby. And so, you know, some people that have been on it for five, 10 years, their concern is, well, is this going to affect me later on after that? That's a great question. So birth control doesn't affect your bodies and the ability to create hormones. But what it does is, especially speaking to oral contraception, so the pill, for instance, what we're doing is supplying the body exogenous hormones over time. So we're more or less taking over that innate hormone production and delivering hormones at a steady state. So you're not necessarily cycling and you're not ovulating. But I think what happens with with hormone hormonal contraception is that women go on it not necessarily to prevent a pregnancy, but for cycle control. So if they have issues with their period, if they have heavy menses or headaches or what have you, there's a list of symptoms that women really struggle with month to month. But when they're ready to conceive and they stop taking the birth control pill, those same symptoms or imbalances are still present. And then it's been, you know, so many years since we've been really in tune with that natural rhythm. And it can be challenging to uncover what was going on to begin with. Right. Um, But that's not to say that hormones, you know, or birth control, there's no free lunch, like there's definitely risks involved with with birth control, specifically speaking to like, clotting risk and stroke risk and things of that nature, especially if you're having or smoking or have other risky, Mm -hmm. risky behaviors, uh, certainly something to consider when selecting a birth control. But long term health sequelae is is not something that you should be worried about. Right. Yeah, exactly. Is caffeine okay when trying to conceive? And if it is, what is the magical number for that? Or is there one? Is there a magical number? <laughs> I think with caffeine, it's caffeine's tough. Like I, it, some people, and this really gets down to like the nitty gritty of speaking to like your genetic makeup. So some people can 
metabolize caffeine readily and easily, and it's not as potent, we'll say, to their systems. But I know for me, like I, I ended up doing genetic testing so many years ago for other reasons, but I come to find out that I am a slow metabolizer of caffeine and it can be more pl- problematic for me. So it makes me anxious. It keeps me up at night and I, you know, really struggle being on caffeine. Caffeine can also potentially raise cortisol and it could potentially raise estrogen. So it really is all of these recommendations. I know this sounds like vanilla advice, but all of these recommendations are very patient specific and you really should work with somebody to try to understand like what, you know, is going to work for your system. But Generally speaking, I think that one cup of coffee a day is is okay, especially if you were drinking it before. But you know, if you weren't drinking coffee before during pregnancy, isn't the time to like take up caffeine? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. Definitely not. Yeah. yeah, I I totally I yeah I totally agree with that. And I mean, if when I was pregnant, the last thing I wanted was caffeine. So, I mean, well, that's the not other caffeine thing. in general, but coffee in general. I mean, the taste of it, the smell of it, all of it. I was like, if you don't get that away from me, I'm going to like throw up. I mean, yeah. I just couldn't even tolerate it. I mean, while I was con- trying to conceive, I was drinking it. But yeah, I mean, the second I got pregnant, I mean, you might just be one of those people that looks at it and says, no, thank you. Or, you know, no, thank you until, you know, week 20 when you start to be like, okay, I can tolerate that. Or maybe even a cup of tea, you know, might be something that you switch over to instead of instead of coffee, but definitely not something to kind of like take up <laughs> the second you yeah. get pregnant, you know, you're like tired and oh, I'm going to, you know, start because caffeine really does if you're not used to it. I mean, it makes you feel very anxious and your heart anxious, rate can go up yeah. and yeah, not really great to start while you're pregnant. That's not an untypical response to caffeine, especially during early pregnancy. I see that all the time. Clients are just like, ew, get this away from me. I can't even think about drinking a cup of coffee. But there's other people that really like it. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a weird phenomenon. (laughs) Okay. How early do I need to start my prenatals if I want to conceive? I would do, I mean, ideally six months would be great, even a year. So addressing any type of deficiencies that you have is important and prenatals can certainly help to tank you up before you conceive. So I would say short answer six months. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then just making sure that you're getting a good one that meets all of those requirements Mm -hmm. fully is an obvious one. At least 400 micrograms DHA is important, which typically doesn't come with prenatal. So making sure that if it's not within your pack to get DHA separate, vitamin D, choline, all of these are really important for not only you, but for your future child. Yes. All right, here we go. I have hypothyroidism. I am concerned I may have trouble conceiving any tips or advice. And obviously, this is a kind of something you touched on when you said, you know, everybody's going to have a different plan, right? And yeah, mm-hmm. um, a different course. And obviously, in this person's case, you know, making sure that your hypothyroidism is controlled well, and your numbers mm-hmm. are where they need to be before starting to conceive is probably important. But anything else you can offer for her? Yeah, definitely. I think that thyroid is something that 
it comes up a lot in my practice. And I think in part because we don't necessarily agree on reference ranges, to be completely honest, for what's considered optimal for thyroid function. So if you're hypothyroid, for instance, I typically will describe it as your metabolic rate, your thermostat is just turned down. And this can really show up in your period and affect your ovulations. So making sure that your thyroid is in a good spot, like you said, it's managed well is is really foundational for a preconception plan. So advocating for a full thyroid panel, especially in the beginning, especially if you have a history, I think that's so important. I can say I've seen more and more that TSH, you know, TSH is is one of those labs that depending on who you talk to can be normal in, you know, five, it can be normal at 10, you know, it just depends on who, what context you're, you're really considering that TSH, but in the context of preconception and pregnancy, we really want to see that TSH closer to two. 2.5. 2.5. So that I think is empowering it's in itself is knowing what those numbers should look like. But for, did she ask the question, did she ask what she can do to support thyroid function? Is that what the question was? Just, she said she's concerned that she may have trouble conceiving because she has hypothyroidism. And do you have any tips or advice? Okay. Yeah. So definitely advocating for the thyroid panel that we mentioned. So the full thyroid panel, uh, making sure you're getting the free T3, free T4. And then what I would recommend is making sure that if you're on medication, you might require more, especially in the first trimester. If you do conceive, I believe it's like the first 10 to 12 weeks, you're solely responsible for delivering or producing or providing the thyroid hormone for the fetus. So requirements, if you're on medication, will typically increase at that time. So just really working with your provider to making sure that your medication is in a good spot. One of the medications that I really do spend a lot of time talking about with our community. And then um, for in terms of diet, there's always you know nutrients that we can bolster or include in our diet to really support optimal thyroid function. Uh, Things like selenium and iodine can be helpful. There's certain supplements that I really like that I can I can link to if that's helpful. But you know, always important to run that by your provider before you Mm -hmm. start some things. And then stress really plays a big role in thyroid function. So trying to come up with some type of stress management practice that can be helpful. Awesome. That's great. Now this question makes me laugh because (laughs) this was a really hot question in my Q and a, (laughs) and I'm excited to hear your answer on this because I think I already know what it's going to be, but is there any way to actually try for a specific gender? Tell us the secret, Megan, tell us the secret, say a prayer, (laughs) say a prayer. I don't know. (laughs) There are so many tricks. And it's so hilarious <laughs> because some people really believe in them. And, believe. you know, and I'm like, listen, mm-hmm. I tried everything under the sun. I've got three girls and one boy and nothing <laughs> works. And <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, I thought I've been really trying to like, yeah, that is really funny because I'm sure that there's so many like old. Oh, you know, old like wives old, tales. Yeah. Stuff. Yeah. Uh-huh. But I, 
I've been trying to like move away from like, cause I, I, we talked earlier before we started recording that I'm in my, my last rotation for my, my practitioner degree and I'm in GYN right now. And I've been really trying to be like self-aware, like asking like boy or girl, you know, it can be kind of triggering for some people. And I think it's, it's better to reframe that in the sense of like healthy baby, you know, like that's, that's really what's important. Oh yeah, for sure. So next question is how to determine which supplements to take. So I think this person's asking, you know, okay, I'm, I've made the decision to want a baby and I'm, I want to conceive what should I be supporting with? I mean, we kind of touched base on this, obviously a prenatal, Mm-hmm. essentially six months before beforehand, DHA, anything else? What about CoQ10? CoQ10 can be helpful for basically it's an antioxidant. So it can help to offset some of those free radicals, which can support an optimal intrauterine environment. It can also help with, I believe you might have to fact check me, but I believe that it can help with sperm morphology and motility. I might be off in that sense, but I do know that it can be supportive for fertility. But in terms of supplements, I'm very much of a food focused person. Like if I can reach those goals within my diet, I think that that's the best step forward. But I'm also a realist in the sense of like, I'm busy as hell too. And I know that, you know, our diets aren't perfect. So meeting your minimum RDA with a prenatal and DHA is is certainly foundational. I think that probiotics are really helpful, especially during pregnancy. We see that women that take probiotics during pregnancy, we see that they have children that are less likely to have allergic sequelae. So like asthma, atopic dermatitis, eczema, we see, you know, decreased with in the group that women that they take the probiotics. So I I always recommend probiotics too, especially if there are ongoing, you know, gut issues or vaginal flora issues, probiotics can be really helpful, especially if you do conceive in the later stages of your pregnancy in the third trimester, I like to start talking about probiotics um, in the sense of like preparing the vaginal flora for that seeding process. That's really when your baby's going to start developing, you know, their immune system, yeah. that first, that first seeding process of going actually through the vaginal canal and picking up vaginal bacteria. So probiotics is probably another foundational one. Um, vitamin D is really important. So depending on what your prenatal offers, it's important to check that. What else? What do you think? I think that's like a good, that's a good I think that's baseline yeah, I think that's for people. Sufficient. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, and then work with somebody. Like if you're really interested in supplements, like work with somebody that works with supplements, you know, you can certainly ask your OB or your PCP, but I think it's important to understand like the context that like they don't, work with supplements so they you know might not know as much so a health coach or even nursing tends to know more um, or naturopathic doctor knows more about supplements so just inquire yeah yeah i think that's great i 
think the rest of the questions that I had circled are pretty much things that we had already touched on. So I think we're going to jump into the two questions I ask all my interviewees. The first question is, Megan, if you could give one tip to a mother, what would it be? It can be about anything. I love that question so much. I I think it's important to just give some context unless in the case of people don't know like what I do, but I am a health coach and I tend to join people's care teams or families care teams in the preconception period. So really preparing for pregnancy and then we'll follow ideally through the pregnancy and through the postpartum period. So I full transparency, I'm I'm not a mother, but I, I care for mothers. So I I feel like I'm in there. <laughs> I feel yeah, like I could yeah. give advice. But I think my my best piece of advice would be to ask for help. I think that a lot of women try to handle things on their own because they're fully capable and they can and they will, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they have to. So I try to advocate, especially in the postpartum period, to ask for help, to come up with a plan that you can delegate because you can be a better mother and wife, show up for your roles better when you have help. Yes, I totally agree. I think it it truly takes a village. It does. Yeah, before and especially after. And it's just important to have those people in your arena, you know? Mm-hmm. So the next question is, what is your favorite recipe to make? Ooh, your absolute that's favorite a good one. I know. So hmm, let me think. I think I was on a recent podcast and I said this. They asked a similar question. I said this too, and I am still hooked on this. So I'm going to share this, but don't laugh at me. <laughs> I'm in this like TikTok hole these days. I don't know if you're on TikTok, but I love it. They have so many like recipes and just the vibe is, is cool there. Like on Instagram, sometimes it feels like emotionally charged and not a very good place for me these days. I know you're going through like similar feelings with Instagram. It's just, it's just hard. I I feel like, but TikTok is kind of easy and breezy. So I've been finding that I've been showing up, not, I mean, me not personally showing up, but just scrolling, I guess. Yeah. But anyways, the recipe that I really like, I don't know if you've caught this on Reels or whatever, but you can make these like wraps with like a huge like burrito wrap and you can cut it in half, but only halfway. So you kind of fill it with all your things and then you fold it on top of each other and then you can like pan or like do like a panini press on top. And I've just been like being whatever's in my fridge, I just throw in and I just be so creative and make these like cool little press wraps that I'm like super into. And I'm probably going to eat them until I'm sick of them. <laughs> You're going to have to send me your favorite one, like your link for it. Yeah. Or the link to the TikTok or because yeah, I'll, I'll put it in the show notes so that if you haven't tried these yet, you guys can try it because it seriously I mean, went viral. It like did. you can throw whatever you can do like dessert. You can make it like lunchy. You can do like veggies, whatever. I haven't tried it yet, but I've seen it everywhere. 
<laughs> it's cool. So, and it's, like, yeah. everything that you need in, like, one little wrap. You can take it, like, on the go. I'm, like, really I might even just try to do this for it right now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I might do that tonight for a Friday night dinner with the kids. Yeah, it's fun. Like, you can make your own. You can customize them, put hummus, veggies, any top, whatever. Yeah. yeah, love it. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Megan, for taking time out of your busy day to be with us and chat with us about preconception planning. And I'm just so happy to have you. Thanks so much. It truly was an honor. I hope that this was helpful. Awesome. Thanks, Megan. Talk to you later. Hey, bye. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. All resources mentioned in this episode can be found in the show notes on lindsayandco.com. To continue these important conversations, head over to Motherhood Meets Medicine on Instagram. Let me know what you learned from this episode and who you would love to hear from next. I always love getting feedback from you. If you're finding value in this podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, and share with a friend. This will help us to reach even more women from around the world. I'll catch you next week. Until then, don't forget to find some time to unplug, unwind, and have a little fun. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.